Welcome to Permit to Think, meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a professional fisherman and host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far and near reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures and wild fish, but I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after a quiet mind and time to think. This ride is too short. So I'm gonna start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I've been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Here we go. Permit to Think is brought to you by Off The Grid Studios. Everyone has a story to tell. Let these and guys tell yours, especially if the unconventional doesn't scare you. Visit offthegridstudios.com for more information. This episode is also brought to you by Ironbound Media, a veteran-owned media company that creates, distributes, and grows podcast series for brands and organizations. Visit ironboundmedia.com. Also brought to you by GuidePointer. GuidePointer is a web-based software that gives your guiding service all the tools you need to manage business. I personally helped develop this software for 20 years and would have never been able to do my job without it, period. GuidePointer is a part of the Romeo Bravo software company. Find out more information, guidepointer.com. Our guest today is Chris Fagan. Chris Fagan is the executive director of the Upper Amazon Conservancy, an organization dedicated to protecting the cultures and forests of the Amazon headwaters in Peru, one of the most biologically and culturally diverse landscapes left in the world. Chris has over 20 years experience developing and directing conservation projects in Latin America. Prior to creating the Upper Amazon Conservancy in 2010, Chris worked as the director of Duke University's Parks Watch program and as Peru director for Round River Conservation Studies. Chris holds a BA in Environmental Studies from Middlebury College and a Master's in Environmental Management from Duke University. When not in Peru, He lives right here with his wonderful family, his wife, Sarah, and daughter, Danny, and dogs, Moxie and Leo. So without further ado, please welcome Chris Fagan. What's up, man? Hey, Mike. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for taking the time to come by today. Yeah, thanks for the invite. This is great. How, uh, how's the, uh, re-entry after the salmon? Uh, you know, it's been, um, it's been pretty good. I'm heading off to Peru pretty soon, so as you know, it's always a little hectic. <laughs> uh, preparing the house for leaving for a while and also getting prepped for everything you have to do when you're away. So, you know, as usual, a little hectic. Yeah, for all the, uh, the listeners out there, we, uh, we just got back from the Maine Salmon Frank Church Wilderness River of No Return trip, which was amazing. Um, what were your thoughts on... Uh, that as a piece of wilderness as someone who spends their whole life trying to protect wilderness yeah it's it's pretty amazing and 
I was a little embarrassed that I hadn't explored that area after, you know, living relatively close by all these years. It's a place I had heard about and, you know, knew of and of its wilderness value. And I think it's um, one of, if not the largest roadless areas in the U.S., in the lower 48. Yeah. Um, And it feels that way when you're in it, other than the, you know, boat traffic. (laughs) quite a few boats coming down the river but it was really cool seeing the the in holdings and these old you know ranches and and um the whole um you know plane culture you know bush plane culture which yeah doesn't i don't think really exist too much in the lower 48 but you know we see it in the amazon and up north i'm sure you you know yeah ak bc yep and um Africa, of course. Anyways, it was cool to see that that whole, you know, super remote lifestyle of these folks lucky enough to live in the middle of nowhere. Really cool. Yeah, it's a um we know when I tell people about the shuttle and for those of you that don't understand shuttles, so you put in and someone moves your vehicle to where you're going to take out and that shuttle is I think it's it's 550 miles. Um which is you know, when you tell someone that, you, you know, you're usually thinking about 10, 15 miles a day. So maybe you're getting shuttled 100 miles on that trip. But I think that speaks to uh, the magnitude of what you got to drive around for an 80 mile float, which is pretty spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's the shuttle's even more complicated when uh, your keys are left in the, in the truck. <laughs> I couldn't get my fucking keys. You weren't the only one. The, the, the folks we were parked next to were you know had a really crowbar and pulling their pulling their door apart to try to get their keys yeah i still haven't even looked at my door yeah i should probably take a look at it. that that was not going well um well by all accounts i think that uh i mean if we were to go back to the beginning i mean you and i right i mean we we knew each other through fantasy football you were kind of vying for a team and possibly I was going to allow you, you know, some ownership, but but you were awarded your own squad. I mean, yeah, that's right. I don't know who who it was that dropped out, but um, you know, Red Rider is the name of Chris's team, and they have been a force. Uh, the name itself <laughs> was derived from a historical BB gun battle on the banks of Lake Powell, but we'll uh, we'll have to get to that story at a different time. Yeah, maybe we should. We should save that one for later. <laughs> um, I have to say, man, when, when I started thinking about doing a podcast, you, there's no doubt like your story was a part of the process because, you know, your occupation is fascinating to me. It's fascinating to others. You don't talk about it. You're a very humble guy. Um, but, you know, when you when you get a little bits and pieces of it and you dive in, little by little, which I've done, it's remarkable. Um, when did you first realize that you were headed into conservation work and what, what would you say pointed you in that direction? Probably start, you know, it had to start around college years, I'm presuming with iron environmental studies or. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, first of all, thanks for, thanks for the invite. Um, Mike, you know, you, you've always been very interested in what I do and I, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think we have, 
you know, quite a bit in common in that we travel to some pretty spectacular places and, and, um, and really appreciate that opportunity to do so. So, you know, your interest is, is much appreciated. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, I, I feel like I've always known that I wanted to work in conservation and how that's happened is kind of take a circuitous, how do you say that? I don't know. Cir- Circum. Circu- cir- yeah. It's taken a, a, a roundabout. <laughs> um, yeah. So how I, how I got interested, you know, happened really from the beginning, like, you know, like you and, you know, telling me about your dad and fishing, I sort of had the same experience and had a family that, um, encouraged us to spend time in nature and fish and, and camp a little bit and that sort of thing. I've always been interested in, in the environment and nature. And so, um, that's just always the route I was going to take and, uh, ended up out here in Jackson because of the amazing open spaces and, and wildlife and relatively intact ecosystem, which I just couldn't get enough of. I came out for a a winter ecology course in college at the Teton Science School, which back then was just a um, kind of a cluster of cabins out in in Kelly in the park in Grand Teton Park, and I just was blown away. I mean, seeing moose from the airport out to Kelly, just um, you know, with the backdrop of the Tetons, and anyway, so I just fell in love with this place, um, and. Um, but eventually started traveling to the tropics and went back to school and for a master's degree and fortunately, you know, hooked up with a professor um, who after graduation asked me to work for him. So I, I stayed, um, in, this was in North Carolina and uh, ran this organization that basically looked at, basically did audits of protected areas in the tropics and in, um, different countries and I had a real incredible opportunity for a few years there to travel to Venezuela and Mexico and Guatemala and <laughs> Brazil. Yeah, it was just it was amazing. And ended was up Was this the Park Swatch? Yeah, this is a Park Swatch, which as the name um, you know, sounds it's a basically watching out for parks and going in and doing audits of protected areas and figuring out what what are the threats and you know, developing solutions to these threats. So I was, I was sort of the, the coordinator of all the, all these projects and did a bunch of fundraising, but also had the opportunity to join the, the, the country directors on some of these visits to these protected areas. And long story short, ended up uh, being invited on this expedition to this place where I still work. And this, this was, you know, 20 years ago um, to a really remote part of the Amazon headwaters in Peru, but on the border with Brazil. And, uh, it just, you know, yeah. for lack of better, better word, it just changed my life. It just, it was just, I was blown away. And was there, um, conservation work done by your family or were you saying that the, the, you know, respect for nature kind of guided you in that direction? Yeah, no, I think just, just experiences, you know, outdoors. It just, it just was what moved me, you know, and I just, <laughs> this obviously was not a decision based on, uh, Fiscal fi- fi- financial security, <laughs> <laughs> but it was always, it was the only thing that really interested me that, that, you yeah. know, and, and I think, 
you know, nature was, was the beginning of it and how I felt in nature. And then over my travels, even before, you know, I started up Amazon Conservancy, um, in Guatemala, for example, I did my, I did some internships and then my master's research in, um, in Northern Guatemala with some, uh, working with some Mayan communities and anyways, just fell in love with this whole idea of the connection of, of, you know, rural, oftentimes native people and, and nature, you know, and how, and, and, um, and anyway, yeah, so that, that, but it's a pretty like, you know, it's a pretty ballsy thing. I mean, I, for me, there was like an impetus to, to move forward in a, you know, obviously the same reasons, right? There's not a lot of fiscal consideration when you go into the fishing business. Um, but was there anything that you, you know, was it your studies at Duke or, you know, something in Middlebury that, I mean, something had to drive, I mean, it's a pretty, it's not your normal path and it, it's, it takes a lot of courage, I guess is what I'm saying. So was there something that pointed you in that direction or was it just like, you know, cumulative experiences in nature and you were like, I, I want to protect this, you know, these places. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I can't really pinpoint one, one, um, one event. I will say that, that, um, one summer living out here in Jackson, um, got brutally dumped by my girlfriend <laughs> and, uh, was living in a tent, uh, way up in the woods and, um, thought, you know what, I need an adventure and ended up hooking up with a friend and, um, hitchhiked down to Moab from Jackson, which was, which was an interesting story. Every time I go past Salt Lake city, um, and, <laughs> show my daughter the place I camped out on the side of the road next to the flying J. But anyways, <laughs> made it down, made it down, uh, eventually to, to Arizona and took a bus down the, the coast of Mexico and ended up in Guatemala and, wow. and did, uh, basically wanted to learn Spanish in this little community that had this new, um, conservation based Spanish school. So you had to get to Moab. I had to, to get, uh, yeah, I had to get to Moab to meet a friend. And then we, then we drove down to, to Tucson and, took a bus, went over the border, took a wow. bus. But anyway, so that, that, that experience in Guatemala with this, you know, really rural community um, that was part of this project that Conservation International put together um, to start this Spanish language school to help provide sustainable income to this community living in the forest. And that was a pretty formative formative experience for me i ended up going back down there a couple other times to work um and then as i mentioned did my master's research and then i thought you know so this was in between yeah this was after this was um after middlebury before 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 grad school yeah and um that's when i thought you know what this really inspires me like yeah and um you know i remember early on thinking you know this is amazing here and in guatemala and it was you know trekking through the forest and visiting these Mayan ruins and um, that weren't developed at the time. They were just, you know, local knowledge. People knew of these, you yeah. know, these, these mounds in the forest that were covered with jungle. And, um, but um, I always thought, you know, I just want to go deeper. I just want to go deeper. Yeah. And, and fortunately, and somehow I've found um, this place that's, 
you know, I haven't traveled as extensively as you as you have around the world, but um, it's pretty deep, and it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, not to uh, switch gears, but that, you know, for everyone listening, Chris has written a bunch of amazing articles, um, you know, obviously that I revisited before we sat down today. <clears throat> one in National Geographic and one in Manga Bay. Um, but I got to say, when I was reading those again, um, it reminded me of... Um, I went to Arnunchal, Arnunchal Pradesh in India and uh, John Meisler, who I've talked to you about, you know, eventually I'll get you guys to meet, but he called me and I didn't know him at the time. And he said, you know, have you traveled at all? And I said, yes. And he said, have you traveled to India? And I said, no. And he said, have, where have you been? And I told him and he said, all right, well, get ready. And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, this is just a different mm-hmm. type of travel. And I, at the time, I was like, whatever, you know, I've traveled the coast of Vietnam, I've been to camp, whatever. Um, I got to say, when I reread some of the stuff that you wrote, those, that, that feeling came back. Um, that it's, you know, I mean, at times our friends joke that maybe, you know, you're, you're down there watching the Pats games and, and gambling. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, um, I get the sense... You know, if I was if I was a betting man, that it's probably deeper than you're giving it credit. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I can't compare it to to those places you mentioned, and you know, I'm not gonna deny that I don't enjoy a nice ceviche dinner in Lima <laughs> on my way through. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's remote. It's roadless. It's um, in terms of conservation and, you know, a huge um, c- connected wilderness area, I think there's, from talking to people who have traveled and, and visited important conservation areas all over the world, it's, it's, it's up there in terms of its importance. Um, sure. Because of its size, again, roadless, um, and not only, you know, ecological value, but um, you know, cultural value, which is as, a, as important as, um, which maybe we'll get to, but, um, yeah, anyways, it's, it, it, I'm happy to answer any questions specifically about the place. It's, it's, uh, you know, instead of just saying it's remarkable, it's, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think maybe we start with, um, the geography, right? Just, just yeah. so we can kind of lay it out because it's, you've got, um, Alta Purus, right? Purus, Purus, yeah. And um, and then is it Manu? Manu, yeah. Manu, um, which are both national parks, and then those are surrounded by indigenous territories as well, correct? So I mean, yeah. So you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have, um, you know, we're talking about southern, southeastern Peru. Um, Manu National Park is a World Heritage Site. It's one of the most biodiverse places in the world. Um, pretty spectacular place um, in terms of um, biodiversity. And um, it has an altitudinal gradient so that you have these foothills of the Andes um, as well as the lowlands, which create this incredible myriad of ecosystems that support all these different uh, species. 
adjacent to that is this Alto Perus National Park, which is north. Which is north, and it it's in between Manu and the border of of Brazil, of Acre, uh, Brazil, um, to the north, and it's mostly lowlands, so not not the diversity species-wise that um, that Manu enjoys, but um, a massive place, huge park, almost three times the size of Yellowstone National Park. Wow. Um, you know, totally roadless, and then yes, yeah, so both of those parks together are um, are surrounded by other protected areas. Three, or let's see, four reserves for isolated tribes, which we'll get four. to. Yeah, which yeah. I mentioned the cultural diversity and the importance, you know, world-class um, cultural diversity of, of different ethnicities living inside these parks and outside the parks um, in different stages of contact with the outside world. So you have these two conservation areas with two parks. You have these reserves for isolated tribes that are sort of buffering these parks. And then you have indigenous communities, which which are really like big chunks of land that specific tribes Mm -hmm. have legal title to um, outside of that. So, you know, in some you have this 25 million acre massive roadless wilderness area, um, which is really in terms of its sheer size um, and again, importance for various reasons. you know, as yeah. I mentioned, culturally, biologically, ecosystem services for all the the people living downstream in Brazil where these rivers flow. Um, and also, of course, climate change. I mean, it's a yeah. huge chunk of intact forest. Yeah. And and not to backtrack, but you... So your, your first time there was via a professor or was... Is that... Yeah, yeah. He was, he was sort of the... the the impetus behind this, he had worked in Manu for, for decades and, um, knew of this place obviously to the North. And at that point it was, it was, um, the government was trying to figure out what to do with it, whether to protect it in some way or divide it up into timber concessions or, and we decided that we should go down there and push the government to protect this area mm-hmm. by, by going in and collecting a bunch of, data, um, information that would encourage the government and the international conservation community to fund and implement a new protected area. A national park. National park. So it ended up being a national park and then also a, a communal reserve, which is kind of a buffer between the park and about 30 indigenous communities that live downstream. So it's sort of the park is more of a... Um, you know, a core conservation area and then yeah. a communal reserve so that the communities have an, a, a protected area, but they can use it for sustainable resource use. And, um, and, um, yeah, so, so anyways, long story short, uh, through that, through that expedition where we collected a lot of information on, you know, species diversity and, you know, um, my part was looking at these communities and, 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 learning more about their socioeconomic systems and what kind of resources they used and land use practices and that sort of thing. Um, eventually in 2004, the government protected it and, um, and which was an amazing effort. And it's just, a you know, 
through my career, you've had cer- I've had certain experiences that have reminded me of the importance of political will, right? If there's people yeah. in power that want something to happen, it can happen. It can happen. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, leadership since then hasn't been quite as, as conservation <laughs> focused, but this was a huge, you know, as you can imagine, a place that's, you know, that size, two and a half million acres yeah. is obviously going to be desired by the timber community and a bunch of other, yeah. um, you know, different industries. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of the impetus. So the, the park was created. And then since then we've, you know, we started working with the park service in, in the local communities to, um, to, to consolidate this huge protected area, which is hard as hell to protect. Consolidate. Consolidate protection, right? Okay. Which you mean mean, between the parks or no, which means, you know, there's various different rivers that begin in this park, right? So, so access is by river. There's no roads. So setting up control posts and training local indigenous people to become park guards and, um, training them on how to use a GPS and how to document illegal activities, that sort of thing. So sort of consolidate the protection of this park. Um, which fortunately is super hard to access, which makes it, you know, somewhat protected from um, invasions and illegal activities, but also makes it hard to protect as well. Um, and then we've, our work has really evolved from, you know, making sure this huge area is protected to incorporating these indigenous communities in, um, in activities that help them benefit from this huge protected area, and then also the the you know profitable and sustainable use of their resources on the buffer of this protected area. And the the protection part of it has to be somewhat of a fuck job. Um, um, I mean, it has to be right. I mean, there's no way you can be that remote and rely on enforcement. I mean, no. Okay. No, I mean, and you're totally right. That's the key, right? You can have government and you can have, you know, the government control posts and you can have a little office in the nearest, you know, little, little border town, you know, little town with an airstrip and a couple of little stores and, you know, a couple of park guards there, but it really depends on these local indigenous tribes that are on the, you know, on the border of this huge protected area to want to protect it. Yeah. and want to keep people out and that they're benefiting from this, the exi- that this place exists. And, th- and that's the real challenge of our work is, is not only saying, Hey, you should protect this place because it's so important for this reason. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not worth much when <laughs> you're, you know, four day trip from getting your kid antibiotics, you know? Yeah. And so we have to provide real viable economic alternatives to these folks so that conservation and sustainable resource use really pays. It can't just be, it can't just be, you know, bullshit talk about, Hey, you know, this is what you should do. And these trees are great. (laughs) Right. Um, so that's our challenge and, um, and that's what we're working on now. Yeah. When I put it in the context of, you know, Yellowstone, obviously just North of us here, it's right. There's no one, there's no one looking to, profit from that park or or wants to use it in a manner a selfish manner you know fiscal reasons farming reasons anything it's just 
it is what it is with basically the only threats being the government. I imagine it's pretty much the opposite Yeah, down there, right? Yeah. Everyone looks at that land and sees a dollar sign, sees opportunity. And so it has to be a constant battle. It is, but, but it's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain, but the only way to access this park is by river <laughs> from Brazil or from Peru by plane, obviously, or walking up these rivers and up and over a watershed divide. Um, so the rivers start in the park and fly and, and flow into Brazil. So okay. it'd be like, it would be like, um, let's see, um, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to go to the Wind River from here, you'd have to go follow the Snake River up to the Grovant. Yep. Go way the hell up the Grovant yeah. and then walk over those those passes and then you follow a little stream down into the Wind River, you know? Yep. So you the river's the the river is all the access. But my point is it's super hard to access this place. However, as you mentioned, the government, you know, has been promoting some different development strategies for this area, including um, a couple a couple roads. Yeah. So one of our biggest challenges was supporting the the local people the indigenous people to keep a road out of the park and um, does that include the proposed road to brazil or is that that's a, that's our newest challenge so there was a there was a proposal to put a road to the park we were asked by um the indigenous federation there that represents all the different communities to support their opposition and publicize their concerns um it was really the 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 brainchild of this real <laughs> lunatic Catholic <laughs> priest from Italy whose life mission was to create this road um, despite a lack of local support for it. Huh. It was really kind of his pet project. And, and he and he's lives down there? He lived there for years and he's gone now. Um, and of, of course it was difficult legally to get uh, to get a road approved through a national park, which worked against him in, in our favor. But now what we're having is all these road proposals in these buffer zones. So it wouldn't be going through the park, but it would be reaching right to the, right near the borders. Um, and, um, and yeah. that's, that's the, that, that, um, I, I'm not sure. I think it was the, am I saying that right? Mag, Magna Bay. Is that the, where that article? Monga Bay. Monga Bay. In that article, there was like a description with like um, the dots of where people were accessing and clear cutting. Like, right? Is that is that via river? Yes. Yeah. So in the past, um, and we're you know I know this is a lot of information and a bit confusing, but in the past, the biggest threat to this whole area, including the park, was logging. Right, mm -hmm. mahogany logging, which mostly came here to the U.S. or the European Union. Um, Fortunately, and so it was happening in the protected areas, but it was also really exploiting these communities that also had these really rich reserves of mahogany in their in their lands. And instead of getting fair market value, they'd get absolutely screwed over by whatever logger would make make his way, you know, a week upstream in a dugout canoe and offer, you know, a old chainsaw or a you know a shortwave radio or whatever. Um, but with the lack of any other income, oftentimes the communities would be like, sure, well, what will you give us for 
10 mahogany trees. Sure. Um, so working with the communities to ensure that they're getting, that they're managing their mahogany in a sustainable way and yeah. a profitable way was one of our big efforts early on, keeping the loggers out of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, we had some international uh, laws on our side. Mahogany was and is an uh, um, endangered species, so it, was, had, it could only be exported under certain o- yeah. oversight, right? which of course wasn't happening. <laughs> but one thing we did with a lot of other organizations is pressure the U.S. government to say, hey, Peru, you're out of compliance with our trade agreement. Yeah. Either start over, you know, implementing proper oversight of your mahogany exports or we're going to you know, pull out of this trade agreement. Sure. So there was like real international pressure. Um, and, but... Yeah, so that was that was kind of a challenge early on, and now it's a whole different challenge. It's um, basically, in 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 short, the the migration of coca farmers from the central jungle and the Andean foothills mm-hmm. to these lowland areas where there's not many people, very little government oversight. Um, and right now, it's it's just we're trying to get our head around about how to how to help our indigenous partners protect their lands from from this massive rush of people and very well organized and well funded effort. Yeah, and and it is it's a lot of information, right? I mean, you, there's a lot going on down there. I th- feel like I've got my head around it a little better, looking at maps and and checking it out, but. The indigenous part, right? I mean, I think for people listening, if you could expand on that a little bit, because we are talking about some of the, you know, last remaining uncontacted tribes in the world, right? I mean, it's right. A, or the highest population of it or whatever. You know. Yeah. So this, this is like, this is the part of the story when, you know, I, I start talking people's eyes just kind of glaze <laughs> over because it's kind of abstract, you know, like, wh- what do you mean? There's people naked in the forest that yeah. I feel like there's, there's two types of people. One, they're like, wait a minute. There's one, 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 one group of people is like bullshit. There's no people who still walk around naked in the forest with bow and arrows, yeah. right? That aren't contacted, that aren't in contact with modern society. And the other group thinks that the Amazon is just full of, you know, naked people with, you know, wood through their nose. And you know what I mean? There's like, totally. I, I think people don't really, it's hard to grasp that like the Amazon has this, inc- these, these incredible, incredibly remote um, and wild places. But yeah. they're all just islands at this point. Yeah, you know what I mean. Totally. And we're 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 really fortunate. I mean, it's such a such a you know an incredible opportunity for me to visit one of the biggest islands left. <laughs> That's how I look yeah. at it. But yeah, so the indigenous part is kind of hard to explain. So I've mentioned that we have these indigenous communities that we work with. So these can be people that... Well, define indigenous, because that's where I get confused, right? I mean, because you, yeah. you have indigenous and then you have uncontacted, or are they the right. same? So indigenous people are, you know, native to the Amazon, mm-hmm. right? And um, let's see. So not to get too too far into the history, but basically a, a real, you know, probably a very rough and probably not all that accurate <laughs> summary of what happened is... Um, the turn of the last century, so let's say 100 and whatever, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 
the Amazon was full of rubber tappers. This is before synthetic rubber and rubber was grown on on plantations. And was that was that harmful? Not to not to stop you, but um, it, it, there's there's two different species. One is tapped, like maple syrup, yep. which isn't. Yeah I'm, uh, yeah, I'm asking about the tapping. Like, is that? Yeah, no, no, okay. done in the right way. That's fine. The other one, which was which was done in the most of the area where we work, where they would actually cut down the tree. So obviously that's yeah not sustainable, but so these 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 places I'm talking about now that are super remote were full of Europeans and Americans and other people collecting rubber. Mm-hmm. And what happened is these these people from outside us um, came in contact with these indigenous people, these native people, and they were enslaved and they were, you know, just treated horribly. Not mm-hmm. to mention wiped out a lot of these tribes by, by disease, you know, a lot of these respiratory illnesses that we're seeing again right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and that's a whole nother important yeah, part of this conversation. Yeah. But, um, so anyways, a lot of these, these indigenous people at that point kind of came in contact with, with outside people, um, and started to live on these major rivers kind of not too far from, urban areas or, you know, places with airports or whatever. And some others decided, screw this. Like, we are all dying mm-hmm. for some unknown reason. These guys, like Whitey, Whitey is bad. Yeah. Like, we'll run. get the hell away from these people yeah. for good reason. And some of these tribes, we think, this is a theory, went deeper into the forest, into these super remote headwaters, which is where this park is, is protecting right now, and have been basically hidden away for a hundred plus years. Now, over that time, some of these people have come out. Like in the fifties and sixties, there was a huge um, missionary effort in these areas yep. to contact tribes and bring them out of these really remote areas and set them up on the on the banks of these larger rivers. And those are the communities that we work with. Right. Yep. And some maybe came out of the forest, came out of, came out of the, like, out of um, an isolated lifestyle, maybe in the fifties, some in the seventies, some in the nineties. And for different reasons, like we work with communities that came out because of these missionaries I mentioned a lot were contacted by loggers during the mahogany boom that I mentioned in the, in the eighties and nineties. Um, and they're in different stages of contact, if you will, you know, somewhere total Western clothing. Yeah. You know, and use shotguns and have outboard motors and chainsaws and have um, satellite TV. Do and they still uphold, you know, parts of their traditions? Yeah, yeah. To, to various extents. I mean, the missionaries did a hell of a good job. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Hell of a good job <laughs> uh, implementing their way of thinking. Yeah. And the biggest impotent, impotent. Imp- uh, <laughs> I'm having trouble with some words together today. So the missionaries did a really good job of implementing their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest obstacles to people taking on this new belief system was getting rid of the old, right? Sure. So the missionaries were quite, quite effective at removing a lot of these old traditions and cultures. Some of the folks we live, we work with, um, you know, still have traditional dress, still hunt with bow and arrows. And these are the, these are the communities that are the most remote that are located 
on the border of these protected areas I've been talking about, mm-hmm. of the of the Manu National Park, Alta Purus National Park, and they share their forests with these still isolated tribes that are still in these remote areas that have decided after all these years have passed down these stories of why they need to remain isolated mm-hmm. and have are staying in these super remote areas. And when we say, oh, we want to, you know, protect the park, keep the park, you know, whole and, 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 and not, you know, violated by loggers and drug traffickers and roads, it's partly to protect these people, even though we're not in contact with these isolated people. Sure. But they, they deserve the right to self-determination. They deserve to have enough land to continue their way of life for as long as they choose to. And they can't do that without a lot of space. And already there's incredible crowding because of all this development and road construction happening outside of these protected areas that are, is really limiting the territories of these tribes and causing a lot of these tribes to have to, you know, um, fight each over, fight each other over, over resources and lands. The, the uncontact. Yeah. If that makes sense. I know that's just, I just threw a hell of a lot at you. It's, it's no, no, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, my, my only, my only experience, right, in being in a region of uncontacted was in the Andaman Islands. Yeah. Well, shit. Those are the most uncontacted, isolated people in the world. Yeah. And I, we, I was, <laughs> I was fishing for giant trevally. Yeah. Well, trying. It was an absolute clusterfuck. But the, the, you know, it was like a thirty-five foot canoe with a diesel engine, and uh-huh. you know, they could, whatever. It, it wasn't working. But they, they explained the island before I even knew about it. And then obviously years later, right, you hear, and then most recently, about yep. the, uh, the guy who tried to make contact and got killed. And um, it was amazing because when I, when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, I've been there. But at the time, like, I didn't, you know, I had, all they said was stay away. Don't even, right. don't even, like, you know, I think we might have asked him, like, why are you staying so far away from this island? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it is such a right. It's it's a very hard thing for people to to contemplate. Right. I mean, on multiple levels, right. One is you're trying to help someone that doesn't know that you are helping them. Correct. And that has to be. I mean, yeah. I don't know. That's such a mind fuck to begin with. I don't know how you. I mean, how many people would you say, like, if you were to guesstimate, right? In, in the area, the greater area in which you work? Are we talking about 100? Are we talking about... No, we're probably talking about... Oh, I don't know. 1,000 people. Okay. In two main tribes. In- two main different linguistic families, if you will, that are then subdivided up into, into subgroups and family units. and um, Yeah, but getting back to the... To, to, um, to what's it, the Andaman Islands? Yeah. You know, when I say these people, and sometimes I, I kind of make the mistake of saying uncontacted because uncontacted is a total misnomer in this case. It's more isolated, right? Okay. Because so there has all, been some. All these people in the Amazon are contacted, maybe not all, but the majority in an indirect way, right? They can raid logging camps and grab an old machete or mm-hmm. an old pot. Or, you know, they can go steal bananas or, or you know, yucca from a, from a remote farm and, and 
Um, you know, they know where all the control posts are for the park. They know where all the remote communities are. You know, there's some contact, if you will, if not direct, right? But the folks you're talking about in India are the only thing, their only contact is what washes up on the beach, right? Yeah, but it's not that much different, really. I mean, in the sense that, right? I mean, they yeah. know, they probably know boat boat ro- routes. Right. They probably know... Um, or they have stories around garbage yep. or stuff that And comes. there's been people who have come ashore over over the past 50 years or so, right? Wasn't there a contact attempt? I don't know, but there there's there was a there was a contact attempt, I believe, and then um which didn't go well, right? And right. then there was that was I th- I I you know, I, I'm just going off a of memory here. I I think that they were deflected by arrows, right? Like they were coming right. in, they were turned around by the arrows. And then the last guy made it onto the beach and then, or close. Yeah. And then got killed. Yeah. I um, think there's actually some crazy video of that attempt. I don't know about the, the killing, but, but yeah, it's just, it's the same thing. And just that, you know, in the Amazon, they're living in these islands of protected forest. And in that case, they're living on an actual Island in the middle of the Indian ocean. And, um, but, you know, when you ask how do you, you know, how, how do you work to protect these people? Well, frankly, I mean, we don't know what their desires are. We, sure. we, we think we do. There's all theories. We can study their movements, and we know they've been in this area because we can find their camps. And, you know, nowadays you can, you can look for these people from your desk in Jackson, Wyoming, using satellite imagery. Yeah. It's crazy. So, like, there's a lot of information on where they are, and we just want to— keep that area protected and keep, keep people out so they're not vulnerable to disease or, you know, more often, more often in the case, it's violence, you know, because the people that go in there, the loggers, the drug traffickers, are just as scared as the isolated people, as the isolated people are scared of them, you know? And I'm presuming there's guns versus yeah. arrows. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and these narcos are like, you know, they make, they make the loggers look like, Pussycats, if you will. <laughs> and when did that, when was that, that push you were speaking of earlier? There's like, always been, you know, because of the remoteness and because of the, the strategic location between the Andes and Brazil, this area has always been used as a trafficking route, you know? Um, but what we're finding in the past, let's say five years, is the actual movement of people to not only, you know, groups walking through the forest at night and using the rivers occasionally um, to move coca paste, basically. Um, Not a fully processed cocaine, but this coca paste into Brazil, where it's flown out on these these airstrips. Um, What we're finding now is the actual clearing of land to to produce and then um, and uh, process coca leaves into into cocaine this just seems like such a monumental effort like incredible you know yeah i guess when the street value is that high the street value is that high there's incredible demand and the people doing this you know they're making good money compared to what they would otherwise even though the, the effort is absolutely incredible not only to go up there and like clear a farm out of the forest but then you know these traffickers these mules that are carrying this stuff through these areas 
that are the, so remote that they're the last areas with isolated people in the Amazon who want to keep everyone out. I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah. And we have no idea what's really happening in these places and that what kind of conflicts are happening. I mean, we hear stories from communities that live, you know, these, these indigenous folks that live near these areas and they report, oh, we saw some footprints, but it was, someone was wearing boots as opposed to bare feet. So we know it's someone sure. from outside doing something. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and they, the, you mentioned two linguistic kind of, you know, tribes. Is, is there the names of those tribes? One, one I don't even know. Mash. Yep. Mashko Piro. Mashko Piro. Do they? I mean, do you think they know that they have that name, or is the name derived from? Was it just given it given to them, or does so they know anything about their language? Or like, yeah, you know? there's a ton known because. Some of their, you know, they 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 are part of a group that also has a, a large population that's settled. Oh, gotcha. Okay, Piro, you know, okay. and these um and um Yine. Sorry, I was trying to find the other word. Yine and Piro. So this is another tribe, and this is there's a really um, interesting book slash story on this guy Fitzcarraldo. And there was a movie made, which you should check out, about this true story about this crazy rubber trap tapper who tried to go over this watershed divide that I'm talking about mm -hmm. into this huge area, Peru, that they couldn't get to back then. This is at the, in the 50s? or This was, oh, no, this is way back in the rubber boom, early okay. 1900s. And he basically tried to push a steamship up and over this watershed divide. And it's a it's a pretty good movie. Um, What's it called? It's called Fitzcarraldo, and um, Mick Jagger was supposed to star in it, and then really? he, and then he bailed. But anyways, uh, <laughs> the um, the Indians, the, the natives they used were this Mashkopiro tribe. Okay, I mean this is documented, and but these were settled part people. Or, no, 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 okay. no, no, no. This was way back, you know, and um, and um, I mean back then there was no. Real yeah, difference, right? Yeah, they okay. come up the river and there's a big village and they're yeah, like, hey, do you guys want to make, you know, yeah, it's hard, you're, coming it's hard with, to, uh, you're coming with us to push this boat yeah. up and over. And, um, and they were enslaved and the women were treated horribly, as you can imagine, and they died of disease. And those, that was the same group that part are now still living isolated. Yeah. Because of those experiences, like with Fitzcarraldo. That was probably a lot to do with the effort to, uh, to not join, right? I mean, so to push deeper into yeah, the forest. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, but back to your point is is there's there's communities, you know, villages with people that you know in Western clothing and um, that are living in remote areas, but that speak Piro, who can communicate with these people. Okay. So there is like occasionally, you know, we're calling this um, the era of contact. Okay. And, um, and as you described to me, that usually happens in the dry season. Is that right? So, so they go down. To, that's when. Yeah. So, so the Mashkopiro um, live in, in larger family groups, maybe, you know, a couple dozen to maybe upwards of 100 people. And because there's so many people, they have to keep moving. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're exhausting resources. They'll go to a certain area and camp maybe for a week and hunt and, and collect turtles and, and then they'll have to move. So they're fully nomadic, fully nomadic. And 
they will walk along, you know, how do you walk through the forest? Well, oftentimes they, most of the time they stay isolated in places where no one could find them and, in, in, you know, under the shadows of the, of the canopy. But other times they'll come down to the riverbanks and use the rivers as their roads, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they also collect turtle eggs in the dry season. And the communities we work with also collect turtle eggs during the dry season. So we have occasionally these conflicts during, you know, the peak of the dry season when the turtle eggs are ready between, you know, the folks that we work with who may have, you know, an outboard motor and can travel far up into the park and, and look for turtle eggs and also the Mashkopiro who are coming down to the, to the river to collect eggs during that season because it's such an important uh, protein source. Have you ever been involved in that or, or as any of your, the people you work with, like been involved in one of those situations? Yeah. yeah. I have, I have a couple friends who have been in, you know, violent conflict with the Mashkopiro and family members have been killed by the Mashkopiro really? and they themselves have killed the Mashkopiro. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, before early on, before the park was created, we would, we would travel up to these super remote areas, you know, through the park to, document this illegal logging that was going on in some drug drug camps um and one time we had to turn around because we we came across uh some Piro. i did not see them mm-hmm. um I they probably saw you they saw us we could we were traveling up it was a super rainy day and um 16 days into this expedition i was absolutely miserable we had another <laughs> two days before we were going to walk over the watershed divide and surprise this 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 logging camp um and in a uh, good way or a bad way bad way I'm bad way yeah. we were gonna we, we want to so if we had gone up the easy way they were there illegally obviously. yeah they would have known we were coming up instead so we went kind of through the back door which was a 20-day boat trip in a dugout canoe through <laughs> what is now the, the park which looking back on it is absolutely remarkable that i had the opportunity to do that i mean it was really incredible in, in so many ways and very uncomfortable and really horrible, <laughs> horrible physically. But, um, yeah. So one day, uh, I just happened to look over, we were way up in this, in the headwaters. The stream was, you know, as wide as this room and I'm getting ready to walk through the forest and I look over and there's all these footprints and a path going up into the forest and, <laughs> and one of our guides and all our guides were, you know, from the nearest community, all had shotguns. And they start running up this path saying, you know, gente, gente, like people, people. And sure enough, there were all these about a dozen um, like sleeping areas mm-hmm. where the Mashkopiro had been sleeping the night before. And there was a bunch of different fires. Every sleeping area has a little fire. Huh. Um, like, and, a, like a lean-to? Yeah, kind of yeah. like these big palm fronds that are stuck into the ground that kind of shelter them a little bit from rain. Probably takes them two minutes to make them. Yeah. And then they have, you know, leaves on the ground where they sleep and they have a, uh, make a little fire. And, um, so anyways, we, you know, stood there for a bit, took some pictures and then we could hear, I, you know, heard what sounded like a monkey to me and mm-hmm. the, our guides looked around and like the Moshko, Moshko, Moshko. And shit. they were right there watching us. Um, so I had two days to get to our destination. <laughs> I would just sprint. Oh, it was, it was, it was nuts. I had two days to get, you know, we're three weeks invested in this thing, but I'm like, I got 
six guy, six local indigenous guys here who are super agitated and nervous and a wreck yeah. with their hands on the trigger. I'm like, this could be like an international scandal, you know, American, you know, <laughs> at the center of a, you know, violent battle between isolated tribes and remote communities. So we, I was like, screw it. We got to turn around. So we turned around and uh, started wow. going downstream without the motor on. And uh, we could hear them calling and finally got to a beach. It was calling like, we like could, we could, call we, we could hear them calling to each other. No, okay, like, like gotcha. a monkey sound. And, um, got to a beach and there, were t- there was another guy, a Peruvian I was with and, um, from Lima and we, you know, put our tents up in the middle of this little beach and all our guides just sat around us all night with their shotguns on their lap. Wow. All night. And then the next morning we got, when it was light, I started going down, t- downstream again. And, uh, the boat that behind me, the boat that behind me saw two of these Moshko men come out of the forest and look at us. They could have killed us if they wanted to, you know? Yeah, I'm sure they could. Oh yeah. And they probably they, knew you were there. I don't know. Days before. Oh yeah. Cause they could hear the motor yeah. miles and miles in the forest. That is so, so that up. was, that was one of the most, that was one of the craziest experiences of my life. And that was really when I was like, Holy shit. Like th- this place is truly remarkable. Yeah. And like these people deserve the right to continue living here as long as they choose. And it's not like a museum where we want to keep people living in this, you know, you know, pre, you know, pre whatever modern way. Yeah. Yeah. Industrial revolution way without metal tools and access to medicine, that sort of thing. But like people should have the right to, to live how they want to. And when they come out, which is happening right now, Mm -hmm. they need all the support we can give them to make sure their assimilation is done in an ethical way. Right. And also probably work hard to, right, keep some of the, that, I mean, just so they don't abandon the traditions and culture that. Yeah, I mean, that for you and I to say that, it's very romantic, and, and I'm not going to lie to you. Like, yeah. I, like the, I like the fact that this place is so wild that it still supports these super, you know, remote tribes that are very, you know, traditional and, and you know, use medicinal plants and, and worship different gods and, you know, travel by stars and, and have this incredible knowledge of the most com- complex ecosystem in the world. Yeah. I mean, their understanding, based on my work with people who were born isolated, who are now living in these settled villages, is absolutely I mean, beyond some, in the sense that it's so hard, so hard. I mean, this is this is knowledge that they've learned, you know, not from their sixty years living in the forest. It's from hundreds, thousands of of not of years of knowledge being passed down from their parents and their grandparents and ancestors. You know, I mean, how how many years does it take to to learn how to make the certain, you know certain ayahuasca brew yeah that that helps them you know talk to the gods and and learn improve their hunting skills and solve their problems and and gain insight from the forest yeah probably help the tribe keep stay together and all kinds of shit i mean totally but, but but you're not what i'm saying is right that that's the part that i guess would scare me the most not the fact that someone's wearing a t-shirt the 
I mean, have you ever heard of the Remettos or have you and I talked about that? Like, no. So you should check it out. There's a great article that the New York Times did about the Remettos and the Remettos were wave navigators from the Marshall Islands. Hmm. And the reason why the article was written is because someone brought it to their attention that this was about to die, this knowledge, right? The, this thousands of thousands of year old knowledge about how, you know, I don't know what the Marshall Islands is exactly width wise, but to get from, you know, a football field size island across the entire circumference is like somewhere in the four or 500 mile range, right? And these guys throughout time learned how to read the windbreaks 400 miles away, non-celestial navigation, solely reading it on the, the water. Huh. And so they got, they got, you know, then came to the New York Times. It's like, someone needs to document this. This is about to go away. Yeah. And so by the time they got to the guy that was passing away, he had tried to pass down some of this information, but it, it didn't happen. So it just is basically dead now. Yeah. And that's what that movie Moana is Right, you know, based on, but it's based um, on the on the wind and the waves. Yeah, literally. isn't that isn't that variable and always changing? Exactly. But think about the amount of information they had to hold. But wouldn't that be based on some celestial readings or something? Some no. landmarks. You have or? to. It, it's absolutely wow. fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, but you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, of course. Stuff like that. There's probably oh. Dazi. I have. I have some really, you know, good friends that I've met over the years who have passed on. I mean, I was on a trip one time. Um, I brought down a guy from, from the U.S. I was working with. Uh, he got really sick. And we were about a week away from being able to get down to the airstrip and, and fly him out. <clears throat> and I just made the decision the, the day before to turn around because he was puking and, you know, just he was a mess. And we stop at this village, and um, I had spent a few weeks there on a previous trip and become very friendly with sort of the matriarch and patriarch of this community, these, this older couple, probably in their, probably in their 70s. And um, anyways, we said, oh, we're gonna, we can camp here with you tonight, of course, of course. And what's wrong with your friend? I'm like, oh, you know, he's got this, he's got diarrhea, you can't keep food down, da 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 da, da. And... Uh, this woman, who ironically is named Danny, um, my daughter's name, um, or maybe not ironically, I should say, but uh, went in the forest at like four in the morning. And when we got up, you know, at six or seven, she had this old Coke, two liter Coke bottle filled with this black liquid and said, you know, tell your friend to take a cup full every hour. And I swear to God, by the end of the day, he was good as new. Do you, do you know what was in there? No idea. <laughs> no idea. Well, I guess that's what I'm saying. I, you know what I mean? I, and, and so just a finish story. So we turned around and continued the expedition. And, you know, he had been taking Imodium and antibiotics. Nothing was working. But she's now, she had now passed on, you know. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge is gone. Yeah. Her, her husband is still around. And he's, he's amazing with medicinal plants as well. But, like, their kids have some knowledge. Their grandkids... Yep. They have no interest. Yeah, I guess that's, um, <clears throat> I don't know. For me personally, right? Like, I, I don't know. I get, maybe it's because I'm so fascinated by that stuff and mm -hmm. am such a believer. But I guess what I'm saying, if it is the, the time of 
contact right. or maybe that's not how you phrase it, but you know, I don't know. It, it, it would be great to, to figure out a way to make sure that that stuff at least, right. I don't, yeah. I, like I'm saying, I don't whether I wear a t-shirt or not, but like that stuff is, yeah. Like you said, thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it, it totally does. But on the other, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, these people are at such risk when they come out of the forest. I've had, you know, some experiences with these groups that are considered in initial contact that have come out of the forest and, you know, not to mention the physical, you know, weakness they are against our germs and whatnot, you know, you know, in terms of sure. these illnesses every, that could wipe them out yeah. regardless of, you know, what vaccines they have. And so that whole thing, but then, you know, there's a lot of sensitivities around these people and, and, you know, you don't want them taken advantage of. Right. Sure. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm with you. And of course the government in Peru, like, you know, has this very hands-off, hands-off policy with these people. Like no one's allowed to visit them. Mm-hmm. Like I used to visit my friend um, who was in initial contact. Um, you know, I just wouldn't tell anyone. And we'd go by the river and we'd say, hey, let's stop and, and, and stay here for a while. But like the government has this agency set up to, you know, protect these people. But they don't do shit. Yeah, it's got to be one of those things where they're they're making that decision in an office. But oh, of course, it's happening in Lima, and they have some good people working for them in the field. But they're underfunded, and they can't get upstream that far because gasoline is ten dollars a gallon in these remote places. And so these people are kind of left in this assimilation process, totally on their own. Yeah, and it's super sad because, you know, they need support. I mean, can you imagine? Coming into this world and no, like have someone like no, me I, coming up there with, a, you know, a cell phone and... Well, no, that's what I was thinking when you were telling that story before, right? It's like, I guess that's where it goes back to like one of those conundrums where it's, there's there's people that potentially were about to kill you guys. They probably knew you were there, like you said, they yeah. heard the motor. They probably knew you were there long before that. Yeah. Um, and you just want to yell like, hey, I created a park. Right. I'm here to help you. <laughs> No, they, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't appreciate that too much. But um, but yeah. that's the beauty of it, right? They don't know. No. I mean, they don't know. I mean, I think they probably looked at us and were like, those aren't loggers, like, in their, you know, in their own way. Like, who, what is that group? Like, yeah. you know, I don't see the usual, like, portable chain, uh, like, um, sawmill, you know, equipment and chainsaws. And I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they felt we were harmless. I don't know. Yeah, it's, um, well, the whole thing is just absolutely fascinating to me. And, um, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, going on to this idea of optimism, it seems to me that people like yourself that are just deeply embedded in conservation work that, you know, you, you retain a sense of optimism. I wish I had more of, you know, I mean, and I feel like the rest of the world could use it because frankly, the, the stuff we're talking about is sad. Um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not easy, right. To to talk about loggers and narcos and people having to leave a way of life because we're offering them a better, but you know, it's, and then you throw in, you know, just a quick little climate change into the, you know, the whole shit show. And I mean, I recently read that, um, that article from the international panel of climate change that said there's no going back. And I mean, it's yeah. like, 
I don't know. I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, in this clusterfuck, like how do you retain, you know, such an optimism, you know, I mean, it's your occupation. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Dazi, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I wouldn't call myself an optimist and I think it's, it's interesting you, you say that. And, uh, I mean, I guess if there wasn't some optimism, then I'd just throw up my hands and be like, fuck it, yeah. you know? But, um, and you know what you said with climate change, I mean, I was reading this week that the Amazon, so the Amazon forest is still a carbon sink, right? Mm -hmm. So it still has an important, obviously a super important role in, 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 uh, regulating carbon and mitigating climate change. But the Brazilian, the Brazilian part of the Amazon, which is about 60% of the Amazon mm -hmm. is now a carbon source. Hmm. I mean, think about that. The biggest, the biggest forest in the world Biggest tropical forest in the world is now adding carbon to the atmosphere as opposed to, 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 to serving as a sink. I mean, if that's not a cause for pessimism, I don't know what is. Yeah. And so things like that, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I get super down all the time. Right now, you know, I have, I'm on a call later tonight with um, some of our indigenous partners that are trying to stop one of these invasions on this new road, um, these People, these settlers are coming in and and uh, moving into these lands that are for this indigenous community with whom we work. So basically, we're trying to keep out these 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 migrants um, who are well funded, as we've talked about before, and doing illegal things. It's 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 impossible without political will, you know. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know. Last week, I, I just got a new grant that I didn't think I was going to get that was super hard to get and very competitive. And now we have some funds to like work with some of these key communities and help them, you know, develop new vigilance skills and protect their lands and, you know, protect Arapaima, Paich, yeah. protect Arapaima and their lakes. And maybe, you know, you, me and a couple of folks go down there and and try to see if we can catch an arapaima on the fly, a native arapaima, not like a reintroduced one, one that's been there forever. And, sure. and um, you know, bring some, you know, bring some really much needed income into this community so that they're not like, well, maybe the road and the loggers isn't that bad idea, a, a bad idea, because at least we'll have some income. Instead, we're like, hey, you know, let's, let's do a man, let's, we're going to fund a management plan for your lake. We're going to bring in some experts, some fishery experts. They're going to tell you how many arapaima you should, you know, catch a year if you want to use it for sustenance and what other species you need to protect and what you don't need to protect. And you can bring downstream to market to make money. And so like little things like that, you know, seeing communities that are emboldened by, you know, some of the work we're doing and, and, you know, maybe their lives are being improved just a little bit. I mean, those are the things that kind of keep sure. me going, you know? Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, it's a, it's a problem of mine always, right. Where I'm looking at the, um, at the end, end zone a little too much and, and not staying present enough, but it's like, you know, for those people listening, you know, an Arapaima is a, is a dinosaur, right. It can grow up to 300 plus pounds. It breathes air, lives in the jungles. Um, and obviously that's a lot of meat and, you know, Chris and I have been discussing, uh, an effort to, um, you know, make a, the first fly fishing trip, which ultimately could bring, you know, some funds as he just, just described. Um, but when I look at, you know, you look at that, it's kind of like the, the needle in the, in the haystack and, 
you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is I need to focus on the needle more. Yeah. Um, but it's honorable, man. Like I, I really do commend you. I mean, it's, it, it can't be easy. Um, the, the wild part of it has to be, I don't know, in my mind, right. Part, part of that hopefully will never go away. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know how, um, you, you are, you know, it's different to be pessimistic in sarcasm, right? I mean, like I'd say you and I, if I were to characterize us, like a lot of our humor <laughs> runs that course. Yeah. But at your core, right? I mean, if you're doing, if you've been doing this for over 20 years, I mean, mm-hmm. you're an optimist, period. I mean, like you're, you're believing in something and continuing to do it. I guess you're right. I'll take that as a, as a compliment. I don't describe myself as one, but yeah, you're right. And, um, but you know, I don't need like to be applauded for this. I mean, I, I have, I am so appreciative of the opportunity to go to these, to go to this place, you know, and see this way of life, um, that frankly doesn't exist in yeah. many places left in the world. So for me, it's just, a, it's honestly an honor. And, uh, and yeah, fortunately I get back down next week. Yeah. Two. So let's, let's talk about that real quick. So the, um, the, is this, are you going to be able to talk to some people about a possible fishing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, our, our priority is trying to, um, support this whole effort to prevent this this road construction which is a whole nother issue we won't get into right now but anyway so that's that's going to be a lot of bureaucracy and and boring meetings um with uh you know government authorities and that sort of thing but then yeah i'm getting into the field i'm flying into this little um border town with a with an airstrip and then traveling upstream for a couple days to this one of our partner communities we have a conservation agreement with this community um and um i'm going to spend a couple days uh traveling around and looking at some of these lakes these oxbow lakes yeah and just like really really like try to not be too much of a dreamer and think of the hard logistics like could i really get you know a group of gringos to this lake without people quitting on me (laughs) and saying screw this we're getting out of here uh it's just it's just you know as i'm not worried about you but like people have to realize it's just it's just hot and buggy and um no air conditioning and but i think for the right person and you're certainly one of those people and the people we've talked about i think would really love it and especially if they can hook into a you know a 200 pound arapaima yeah (laughs) and um would that let, let's say we bring a let's say there's a, let's say this goes well right there's an exploratory group find some fish people are able to do it um and then we're able to you know put on a you know a trip once a year uh-huh is that what kind of would that make like a sizable impact oh hell yeah okay oh yeah um you know we need some funding yeah we need to set up some infrastructure so we had some you know mosquito netting at nights and you know, some some power source so we could have some, you know, cold yep. cold water to drink and that sort of thing. But yeah, if we if we could get an investor on board, um, and you know, we'd work with the the feder the, the indigenous federation that represents all these communities, right? And mm-hmm. try to you know, it's difficult, right? When I when I travel upstream to this community, I have ten other communities that see us go by in the boat and are like, "How about right. us?" Yeah, you know, and this God. is yeah, it's. 
so difficult. Um, so trying to divide that pie. You're, you're throwing hats and t-shirts. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, so trying to divide that pie to as many you know, people as, as possible is really the challenge, but yeah, turning that into a positive, yeah, like, but well, look but what the, these guys are willing but to but do. But this is what we do. Like obviously yeah. the community that we're based at, right. Is going to have some kind of lodge there where we stay and we're going to employ their, you know, some cooks and some boat drivers. And we're going to, you know, the people meeting us at the airport, you know, the airstrip that are going to take us upstream are going to be from a different community, you know? And so try to get as many folks involved as possible. But, but, uh, you know, Sixty to a hundred thousand dollar right tab to get in there for whatever size the group is. We don't. None of that needs to. We don't need to figure that out now. But I guess what I'm asking is something like that would be. Oh like, yeah, that, that's huge. Oh, right? that'd be a huge boost. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's ideal. But um, well, when you come back, let's um, let's nail down. Yeah, some dates. hopefully I'll have some good good insight into what it will take. Um, and I've been thinking about this forever, but like I need to make, I need to see Arapaima in the lakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but before caught, you guys you, come down, you, I have one, I have, yeah. but I don't want us sitting around, you know, two lakes for a week. Yeah. I, I, I want them to be, you know, a half dozen lakes that have Arapaima and have a, you know, are accessible so we can drag a boat in there. And have you talked to the guys at Indy fly? Yeah, I have. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean they're they're a great probably a great resource because it's they are. I was yeah. pushing this on them, but they're you know they have a really successful project in Guyana, and yeah. um, I think they have no lack of potential projects. You know what I mean? Sure. And I Absolutely. think I think maybe another Arapaima. At least last time I spoke to them, which actually was a couple years ago. They have a really cool one going on here. Um, yeah, with in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, it's exciting and, you know, scary, to be honest, at the same time. But, um, yeah, I would love to uh, – you, you get me some dates and, and what's needed, and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get that done. Yeah, it's been a dream of mine, and I, I just feel like it's got to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it goes back to that idea of – I mean, you're, you're protecting – I mean, your work is to protect something that's kind of a secret, right? I mean, it's a very hard thing to mm-hmm. – do but at some point you probably have to break and right i mean you know at least show your friends that you actually are doing something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah I've, I've i've had some folks go down there but very few and um you know as we started this whole thing talking about how it's kind of an abstract I don't know. There's some things that are very hard to understand if you haven't been down there. Oh, I, and I, so yeah, I'm not getting even... more folks like you know you down there and and um, you know maybe getting you guys on my side and doing some fundraising when you get back. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, I mean, the whole thing is just—it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. It's amazing. Uh, it's commendable, honorable, um, and I'm—you know—we're gonna get you back on here. I, I. I don't want to cut this short, but I know I'm taking up a bunch of your time. Um, but I do have some some thought topics that I like to just wrap up. Uh, oh yeah, each show with it's so fantastic. Put one me up, uh, put me on the spot. One is, um, you know, I think maybe you brought it to my attention, and and I thought about it. The the what were your thoughts about the the reason behind leaving the hoods up? Um, so for, for everyone listening, so you get to this crazy, um, 
this, we're, we're, we're talking about the Salmon River trip. So you get, you get to the put-in, you know, to the Frank Church Wilderness, the largest untracked roadless, yada, 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 yada. Um, and all of these hoods on the vehicles are up. And I think you, you and I were camping next to each other. You asked me, or we, we, or I told you, but that's because of rats. Yeah. Um, what, what were your thoughts? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I still find it hard to believe. But so these are these are vehicles that people have left when they get on the water, and then a shuttle company is going to come drive these, drive these to you know the, the takeout. Yeah, the five hundred miles. I don't know. I mean, I I I, I didn't see any rats. Did you? Mm-mm. And and in, in like that, there was no garbage facilities at that campground so yeah, that, people so were I don't, pretty respectful right so the, i don't know what those rats are you sure it's rats yeah no they, they they're it's because they, they they go after the engines when they're like they like the, like the battery acid or something yeah, or I, I mean i we had a vehicle taken down in the keys wow from that exact oh thing. it happens in the keys too yeah and i have a video of the rat in the engine so oh, wow. I, had, I had the vehicle towed in but I guess the difference is, it, in my mind, it makes more sense in the keys at that, right. at that um, you know, put in it, it. It took away a little, you know, it takes away a little bit of the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's the first time I've seen that. And um, I, I don't know. I'm going to do, do some Google research on, on that. Why, why there would rats would be a problem there and in the keys. And like, I mean, you know, you leave your car in places all the time for long yeah. You know, for several days on end, and we never worry about rats. We, uh, I watched a, um, a short about rats with my kids the other night that was absolutely fascinating. But really, um, yeah, it's uh, I think it's on uh, it's on Disney, but Pixar. Huh. Um, so moving, moving on to the next topic, um, zero inbox syndrome emails. Uh huh. So, do you, do you have that? You mean where you can't, you have to open all your emails? You have to, yeah. Show you that have, they're read? Or um, clean out your inbox. Like, huh. So my inbox, I have, I have all, every thousands and thousands and thousands, but they're, I read them. I, I like at least open them or delete <laughs> them. Like I can't have unopened emails, if that's oh, your point. Yeah, well, my point is also like for me, I, I have to, you know, my, my ADHD, yeah. whatever, you know. I have to like clear it out. Like it, it. So where do you put all your messages? I delete them. Oh no, I put I put the ones that I need to keep in folders. So you have folders for everything? Well, I mean, I delete wow. all the spam, and I have yeah. spam filters. Um, but yeah, I have folders for. I mean, I have to move stuff out of my inbox. Oh yeah, I just keep everything in the inbox, and then you can just do a. <laughs> I search like twenty times a day for certain things. Yeah, I knew I had a problem. Yeah, no. Yeah, so I, I mean, mean that's like, more efficient, but. It takes a lot of time to do that. It's like I get in this with my wife. Like, it, when it takes so much time to organize stuff, isn't that like less efficient than just keeping a messy house? It's probably, yeah. But I mean, it's my brain. Like yeah. I can't, you know. I mean, it's not a horrible problem to have, Dozzy. You're yeah. all right. Um, next topic. I don't know what those are. <laughs> Mormon crickets. Have you been out in on any of the paths recently? No. So I was out yesterday and I shouldn't have been, but Mormon crickets are huge. Right? Uh-huh. They're, you know, it looks like a two inch, um, two inch wide by four inch long beetle. And yeah. that's probably an exaggeration, but I mean, it's noticeable, right? Yeah. And yesterday I saw 11 of them. 
Wow. Um, and was hoping that someone like yourself would be able to explain why. Is it a new, is it like a no, late, no, late summer thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm guessing it is, but I have no idea why. Um, they haven't been, right? I haven't seen one yet. And then you get yeah. on the trail and you see. I haven't, I haven't been on my bike in weeks. So, um, but I mean, have you tied up an artificial one yet? Yeah, yeah. I'll show you a flop. Oh, really? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you should see it. There, uh, <laughs> it's it was one of the things that people used to pick up in the fly shop. Um, oh, so like, they they thought it was a gag, or like a, right, you know. But but the fly's about it's like that big. It's it's huge. Uh huh. Um, I'll keep an eye out. Yeah. Well, what are you reading currently? Because you've lent me some books and kind of it's. Uh, you're always reading something good. Uh, I don't know. I go through phases. Um, right now, I just picked up a book. I don't even really know how to describe it that well. It's called Anthropocene Reviewed. By um, author is Green, and it's pretty cool. Actually, you might like it. He had a he had a podcast. Maybe he still does. And these are kind of like chapters from the themes of his podcast. Huh. And um, about just sort of, you know, different, I don't know. I don't really know how, like, it's basically about like human nature and, and, and also humans in, impact on the earth, you know, hmm. and how we're like so powerful in that we can like change the climate, but yet we're not powerful enough to like fix it. Sure. Like maybe powerful. We're not, we're not smart enough to fix it. Like we yeah. know what we need to do, but like, we can't do it, you know? So, so it's just some kind of, DNA was missing. Right. So it's just kind of these, this kind of like contradictions of the human experience and, and all throughout this, you know, Anthropocene, which, you know, is this, the what does that mean? It's just the, the geological age with, with humans, you know, 200, huh. 250 million years ago and to now. So it's kind of like, have you heard of that book sapiens? Yeah, I have that. I haven't opened it yet. Yeah. I started, I haven't read it. Um, I need to, yeah. Um, and then last topic, who is the most interesting person you've ever met and why? Oh, man. Huh. You know, I guess I'm going to keep keep to this theme. Um, you know, w one of these guys, this these families that were, were brought out of the forest um, by missionaries when I first started working down there. So in the early 2000s, there was some evangelical missionaries from from the U.S. who were trying to contact the Mashko Piro, mm -hmm. the isolated tribe. And instead, they ended up contacting this other tribe. You know, I said there's like two main isolated tribes. And what was the name of the other one again? The other one, they're called the, they're a, they're a Yaminawa group, but they're called the Mastanawa. And um, much less aggressive than the Mashko Piro. Huh. And anyways, they successfully contacted this, this fa actually a family of four came out, a man named Ipa um, and his two wives and, and his mother-in-law. Hmm. And they were sisters, the, the, the two wives are sisters. And I had the incredible opportunity to visit him over the years and, and experience this assimilation process, which was super, super sad because he was left on his own just to kind of sort of the, he still had contact with his isolated family in the forest, mm -hmm. but then also traded with these settled communities downstream. 
Was he able to share with you, like emotionally? Like what? We couldn't communicate that well. I mean, it was through, you know, our guide spoke Spanish and then um, a, a different, um, you know, a language that was similar to his so mm-hmm. that they could communicate. But, you know, I was going through translators. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to kind of walk around with him in the forest and think about what he was thinking at certain yeah. times and like what was going through his head. I was in the 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 town a couple of days by boat downstream the first time he went there with one of his wives who had a badly infected foot and couldn't walk so they went down there to get medical help with one of the communities next to him some people brought them down and the woman like was screaming the entire time like wailing you know she was so overwhelmed with all the people it was just it, it that's a whole nother podcast yeah but like seeing him walk around with this look on his face and people like going up to him and taking pictures and like putting a machete in his hand and like giving him gifts and stuff. It was just the most bizarre thing. Yeah. Like those things aren't happening that much in the world. People coming out of the forest and like seeing a TV and uh, uh, anyways, but my time spent with him, even though our communication was, was pretty minimal was just so fascinating. Yeah, and I have to I have to imagine though that even though maybe you weren't be able able to translate, you know, w- by words, mm-hmm. that there had to have been some sort of vibe that you were sharing with with that person, right? You you were picking up on what he was giving out, right? Oh yeah, like, I mean, we had we had ton we had we had a good relationship. I mean, the first time I met him, which was the most bizarre scene ever, his I was waiting for him in this camp, um, and he had left his clothing. So the missionaries had taught him to wear clothing. He left his clothing on the trees by the riverbank. Mm-hmm. So when he goes in the forest, he didn't want any clothes on Cause how do you run around in the forest when you have clothes hanging off, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So he, so I knew he was in there. So we waited, he comes out. Meanwhile, his wives are, won't come out of the house and they're freaking out because they're, they're big. He's got these howler monkeys tied up that are like, <laughs> beating on the thatch roof and like it was quite the scene so like we kind of waited down at the boats and and when he came out you know i looked around and he's walking up out of the forest he's got his bow and arrows and his wife is behind him you know no clothes and she's got this massive turtle wrapped to a strap around her forehead a live turtle a live turtle yeah that they found in the forest. they didn't they didn't hunt they didn't find any meat but they found a turtle well yeah. You know, they were looking for, um, you know, tapir or, or boar or whatever. But um, anyways, we had this great plate of chicken and rice, you know. <laughs> we brought up some live chicken. Yeah. Thinking, this is a great, you know, icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> and he picked up the chicken in the plate and smelled it and gave like the most disgusted <laughs> look. And threw it down. Like the last thing he used. But yet, then they start tearing open this turtle. And yeah. put the turtle right directly on the fire and just start, you know, pulling off pieces of this turtle, you know. And so in subsequent trips over the years, he, you know, acquired a good appetite for chicken. Oh. <laughs> so that I'd always like offer him a plate of chicken and then through the translator say, yeah. remember when you didn't like yeah, chicken? And so, we, awesome. you know, we had these kind of jokes. But that is anyways, so I'd say. him a uh, chicken hat. <laughs> chicken hat, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, well, uh, 
Yeah, Dawsey, this that's has been a, great. That's I, amazing. I, I, I can't I can't thank you enough. Um, no, I, really... I thank you for giving me the opportunity. And, and again, you know, hearing me out and, and trying your best to understand all this stuff is, is really appreciated. I can't wait to get you down there. Yeah, and I can't wait to get, you know, you back on here. And, um, you know, like I, yeah, I appreciate your input. Um, and I look forward to having you, you know, on again down the line and see where at least, you know, this ship has sailed in regards to the podcast. And um, so anyways, for more information about Chris and the Upper Amazon Conservancy, uh, go to upperamazon.org and also on Instagram at Upper Amazon. Anywhere else people can find? No, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and also search, you know, net for the Nat Geo article Chris wrote and Manga Bay. Mm-hmm. The, the, they're fascinating articles. Cool. Um, well, thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you, Mike. It was great. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Permit to Think. My hope is this podcast offers meaning, meaningful conversations and stories from the fringe of societal norms. And we'll see where it goes. Saludos. I am out. Be sure to subscribe and support the podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you are on. Also, forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with where this ship might be sailing.